You know what, actually, I read something about winter this past week. You know it was actually a part of the fall, and by the fall, I don't mean fall the season, I mean the fall of mankind. Like back in the Garden of Eden, there was no winter. Sin entered the world, and consequently, we have winter. And cats. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love cats. But in all seriousness, like if you can live next to the ocean or the mountains, like I think you're doing pretty well in life, you know? I'm, I'm from Ohio. That's where I was born. That's where I lived for the first seven years of my life. And if you ever find yourself not being grateful that you live in Colorado, just go to Ohio for a week. And that, that will do it. All right, let's do this. Let's pray. And let's, let's pray for two things. Number one, let's thank God that we live in Colorado and not Ohio. And number two, let's invite the presence of God to this place tonight. Because honestly, without the presence of Jesus here, like, there's no point to us being here. You know, if we don't have the spirit of God here, then like, we might as well all just go bowling. You know, and while that sounds fun, um, I believe that the presence of God is going to be here tonight. I've been praying for you guys this week, and although just up front, there's some hard stuff in, uh, in what we're going to talk about tonight, but I believe with all my heart that there is also a really, really refreshing lesson in here for all of us, and I include myself in that, and I am pumped, man, because to find the personality of Jesus is to find the greatest treasure that there is, you know, like you, your soul needs Jesus like your body needs oxygen. It really does. So let's pray. Would you guys stand with me tonight while we pray? Bow your heads and close your eyes or else it doesn't count. <laughs> I'm kidding. Let's go. Heavenly Father, God, first of all, God, thank you that we do not live in Ohio, God. Thank you that we get to do life in a place as beautiful as Denver, Colorado. And Father, Tonight, we just asked you for one thing, God. I pray that tonight we would come to know you for who you really are, that we would come to know your personality um, for what it really is and the way that you've revealed it to us through your son and through creation and through ourselves as we're created in your image, God. Let your spirit fall on this place tonight. Know how badly we want you here and not just need you here, but want you here. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much. And in the midst of all of the prayer requests that we have, we, we just tell you tonight, we believe there is nothing greater than just simply knowing you more. And so tonight, that's all we ask for. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. All right, let's get right to it. So in the book of John, Jesus gets into a pretty intense fight with some pretty important people. And so the scene is 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem in crowded, busy, fast-paced, hustle and bustle Jerusalem. And it's so crowded right now because there's a Jewish festival going on. And Jesus shows up to Jerusalem. And Jesus goes straight to a pool called the the pool of Bethesda, and he doesn't go to the pool to go for a swim, although I'm sure that would be refreshing, and he doesn't go to teach uh, water walking lessons, although that would be awesome, but he goes to the pool of Bethesda because this pool is rumored to heal people every once in a while, and so consequently, it's lined with um, people who are blind and people who are deaf and people who are paralyzed in need of healing, and one of the guys around the pool is a guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. Think about that, 38 years. Like, you guys know how long a year is. 365 individual days, 38 times, and all of that time just to lie on this mat and wonder if he's ever going to be healed. And then one day, Jesus shows up, and Jesus asks him a really interesting question. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Which is a question that could be a series in itself. He looked at this guy and said, hey, if I could heal you right now, would you want me to? Because if you do, then stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And this guy stood up 
and picked up his mat. And for the first time in almost four decades, he walks home. Like, you'd be pumped for him, right? Yeah, like this causes, this is worthy of a celebration. That would be the appropriate response. This guy is having the best day of his life. But not everybody in Jerusalem thinks so. And right here we pick up in John chapter 5, verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, meaning it was against the law to do work. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. All right, so this guy's just, he's on a mountaintop experience right now, probably the best day of his life. You know, you'd be pumped for him. I'd be pumped for him. Heck, I'd probably throw a party for him. I'd be like, bro, you are coming over tonight to my hut, and I'm gonna throw a party for you, and I'd invite all of you, and we'd all show up, and we'd throw this guy a party because it's the best day of his life. But the Jewish leaders see him, and they completely miss the point of what's going on here. This is what they say. Or they said, it's unlawful for you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So that's what I did. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so now it's on Jesus. And so now Jesus is about to get in trouble. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, keep in mind these things, meaning he healed a guy who was paralyzed. So because Jesus was healing a paralyzed guy on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so a fight breaks out. And when I say fight, I mean these Jewish leaders start the fight, and Jesus Jesus is about to finish the fight. Like these guys come on the scene and in the middle of a crowd, they try to make Jesus look like an idiot. They try to call him out in front of the crowd and Jesus, he, he's gonna finish it. And there's a, there's a scene in the movie, Goodwill Hunting. Has anybody ever seen that? Really good movie. And um, in it, there's a character named Will Hunting played by Matt Damon. And he's at a bar with his buddies next to uh, Harvard University. And these guys don't go to Harvard. They are janitors at Harvard, including Will Hunting, despite the fact that he's secretly a genius, like he's a prodigy, like he has brain power on the level of Einstein, you know? And they're at the bar hanging out, and Will Hunting's best friend, played by Ben Affleck, goes up and starts flirting with these two girls. Classic Ben Affleck. You know, and he's doing a good job too. He starts a conversation, and then this Harvard guy, and you'll see in the clip because I'm going to show it to you, comes up and he knows Ben Affleck is not a Harvard guy, and so he tries to make Ben Affleck look stupid, not just in front of the girls, but everybody in the bar. And Matt Damon, Will Hunting, kind of steps in, and uh, well, let's just watch it. Here we go. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Hi, how are you? Fine. So do you ladies... Uh, here often? Do I come here? I come here a bit. I'm here, uh, you know, from time to time. <laughs> do you go to school here? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. So I think I had a class with you. Oh, yeah? What class? History. Maybe? Yes. 
think that's what it was. You don't necessarily might not remember me. You know, I like it here. It doesn't mean because I go here, I'm a genius. I am hey. very smart. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Good, how you doing? You want it? What, uh, what class did you did you say that was? History. history. Yeah. Just history? It must have been a survey course then, huh? Yeah, it was. It was surveys. Right. You should check it out. It's a good course. It's a good, be a good class. Oh. How'd you like that course? You know, frankly, I found the class, you know, rather uh, elementary. Elementary. Yeah. You know, I don't doubt that it was. Yeah. I, uh, I remember that class. It was, um, it was just between recess and lunch. Clark, why don't you go away? Why don't you relax? Why don't you go away? I'm just having fun with my new friend, that's all. Wait, we could have a problem? No, 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 there's no problem here. I was just hoping you might give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the southern colonies. My contention is that uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most aptly be characterized as agrarian pre-capital. All right, of course that's your Hang contention. On a You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Moxian historian, Pete Garrison, probably. You're gonna be convinced of that till next month when you get to James Lemon. Then you're gonna be talking about how the economies of Virginia and Pennsylvania were entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's gonna last until next year. You're gonna be in here regurgitating Gordon Wood talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital-forming effects of military mobilization. As a matter of fact, I won't because Wood drastically underestimates the impact Wood of social Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers. Work in Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I read that too. Were you gonna plagiarize the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own is your own idea just to impress some girls? Embarrass my friend? See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're gonna start doing some thinking on your own and you're gonna come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could've got for a dollar 50 in late charges at the public library. <laughs> yeah, but I will have a degree and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-thru on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. But, I mean, if you have a problem like that, I mean, we could just step outside. We could figure it out. Nah, man, there's no problem. It's cool. It's cool? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm right, it's cool. How you like me now? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so later on, Matt Damon uh, gets that girl's number, and then he sees that dude later on that night, and he goes up, and he's like, hey, man, do you like apples? And the guy says, yeah. He's like, well, I got her number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> it's just, it's good. So here's my point. It's like, it's not, it was not difficult for Will Hunting to come up in that scene and do what he did there. Like that fight was so one-sided that it was laughable. Okay, so take this, let's go back to our story 2,000 years ago. The Jewish leaders try and call Jesus out in front of the crowd and make him look like an idiot with the very scriptures that Jesus himself wrote. You know, you think about that, and Jesus, man, he just goes for it. And if you look in your Bible, you see like a couple little lines of these guys telling Jesus off, and then you see like a page and a half of red letters, which means it's, it's Jesus just going back at these guys, yelling at these guys, saying, man, you guys are completely, completely missing the point. You are so 
caught up with religion right now, so caught up with the do's and don'ts that you just completely missed the miracle. The fact that that guy can now walk, like you're so caught up with being more righteous than everybody else and making sure everybody knows that and trying to earn your way to God that you completely missed me, the one who is God, the one who's standing right in front of you. And somewhere in the middle of this mini sermon that he gives him, he says this, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then he goes on 10 verses later and here's the climax of what he says. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Translation, you know everything about me, but you don't recognize me. And let's, let's just remind ourselves ourselves who it is that we're dealing with when we say these Jewish leaders. Like, these guys are powerful. These guys are the leaders of the church. These guys are Varsity churchgoers in, in every sense of that phrase. You know, they have been pursuing religious perfection since before they could walk. These guys would have had the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy completely memorized, and probably the majority of the rest of the, New, the Old Testament memorized. And Jesus says to them, You've got those scriptures, you've got that book right in your hand that you're holding, you've got it memorized, but that book is a story about me. I'm right in front of you, I'm God with skin on. That's who I am, the God that you've been reading about your whole life. I'm here for you to get to meet and for you to get to know and for you to have a relationship with and for you to love, but you don't even recognize me. More than that, you're rejecting me. You know everything about me, but you don't know me, and because of that, you're missing out on the greatest thing in the world. You got the rules, but you missed the Savior. You got the rules, but you missed the Savior. And it's important for us tonight to look at that because we can bash on these Jewish leaders, and we can bash on this... Harvard guy in that movie, you know, and rightfully so, but I think it'd be a bit arrogant of us to think that we couldn't fall into the same traps that these guys did, of getting the rules but missing the Savior. For the first 18 of my lives, I thought Christianity was the rules, and then realized, oh wait, it actually is about the Savior. The Savior's the best part, man. This whole thing's actually about Jesus. When I thought it was saving myself for marriage and not cussing and not drinking and not watching rated R movies, including Goodwill Hunting, it's like, that's what I thought Christianity was. And the list goes on and on. Wait a second, no, it's about Jesus. And, and it'd be arrogant for us to think that we can't at times miss the Savior and focus on the rules. And, and here's what I mean. This is the best way that I can explain it. Back in the summer of 2011, my best friend, uh, Ethan, and I got jobs for a, their week-long, it was a week-long job working at Cherry Hills Church in Highlands Ranch um, at their summer VBS summer camp thing for like a 1,000 kids and camp counselors. And our job basically was just to play worship sets. And it was two sets a day, one 20-minute worship set in the morning for all the kids, and then one 20-minute worship set at lunch for all the kids, which was super fun. And it was kind of a joke because we literally, for the rest of the time, got paid to drive golf carts around the, the massive property of Cherry Hills and throw water balloons at little kids. Like, that was our job. And they loved it. You'd love it. I, and it was fun for us to throw it at them, you know? And so one morning, that's not what this is about, but one that's just... To paint the picture, one morning uh, we, we drove over to Valor High School, which is right next, right next to Cherry Hills, to their football field because some of the Denver Broncos were there uh, doing some off-season training, one of which was a guy by the name of Tim Tebow. And I know you're like, uh, newsflash, Doug, this is 2014 and Tim Tebow is no longer cool. Uh, two arguments for you, he's still cooler than you. <laughs> and number two, 
This is 2011 where you turn on SportsCenter and all you heard about or saw was Tim Tebow, like to the point where you couldn't stand it. This guy was a big deal. And I got to hang out with him for 15 minutes. And it was, yeah, it was like the coolest, uh, it was 10 minutes. It was 10 minutes. It was five minutes. But I promise, in a church, it was five minutes. I hung out with Tim Tebow for five minutes, and at the time, coolest five minutes of my life. And here's the thing, like, I can stand up here and tell you guys all about Tim. I can tell you that he went to the University of Florida, that he um, was the first ever player to win the Heisman Trophy as a sophomore, that he won two NCAA national championships, that he was drafted in the first round of the 2010 NFL draft. And in 2011, the fall after I hung out with him, he played quarterback for the Broncos and almost took them to the Super Bowl as a 23-year-old kid. And he's six foot three, he's 240 pounds, he's probably like the best role model that you get. But here's the thing. If you went to Old Chicago tonight for Red Rocks Young Adults After Hours and you got one of those $2 happy hour pizzas, man, you gotta go get that. And you saw Tim Tebow there and you went up to Tim and you said, hey, Tim, Doug Weckenman says hi. He, he would have no idea what you're talking about. He'd look at you and be like, he'd, he's polite and so he'd probably be like, oh yeah, tell him I said what's up because he's the golden boy and he has to say that. But he doesn't know who I am. I don't know Tim. I hung out with him for five minutes, you know? And I can wear the Tim Tebow jersey. I can stand up here and spout off all kinds of facts to you about Tim Tebow, but I don't know him. And so here's the question tonight. And a lot of you might know where I'm going with this right now. And just answer this. This is just for you in your own heart, okay? So be honest. Here it is. Do you know Jesus the way I know Tim Tebow? Do you know Jesus like I know Tim? Like you can, you can play the Jesus game and you can tell me facts about him. And you know some verses and maybe you've been doing this for a long time, you know, and you know, you know, he, he died for me and then on Easter he rose from the grave and, and you, can, you can play the Christian game and you can, you can talk the Christian talk and you, you know um, the Christian style and all of that. And maybe you've been doing it for a long time, but do you know Jesus or do you just know of Jesus? Because according to Jesus, in the lesson that we can learn from our Jewish leader friends, there is a big difference between knowing things about him and knowing him. And that's the difference right there between life and death. One of those things is life in Jesus, and one of those things is religion, and religion cannot save you. The only thing that can save you is Jesus and knowing him. And the scary thing about religion is it gives you the impression of having Jesus when you don't actually have Jesus. And if, if you've never heard this before, or you're new to the whole Christian thing, or if you're not, get this right here. Here's the thesis, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and religion are nowhere near the same thing. Like if you were to boil, if I were to take religion for you and boil it down to one sentence at the core, here's what religion is. I obey so that I can be accepted by God. I obey so that hopefully God accepts me. And pretty much all of the world religions um, would follow this theme right here. That there are things that I gotta do to please God and there are things I should try to not do so I don't piss God off. And if I, if I do enough good things, hopefully my, my scale of good things will, will outweigh my scale of bad things and I'll go to heaven one day. And, and the, the majority of the world and all the religions of the world believe that. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians also subconsciously can fall into the same trap of thinking those same things 
things about Jesus. Like we'll, we'll work for it and we'll earn it and we'll learn things about him and we'll clean ourselves up and we'll pray that we're pretty enough that one day we'll be accepted by God thinking that one day we'll stand in front of the creator of the universe and we'll be able to point back to Sunday mornings and Thursday nights and go, huh? See that? All the times I got my butt in church when I could have been watching football. Now I get that there's some things that you're mad at me about, but Jesus, Thursday nights, man. See how many hours I logged doing that? And I, I talked to, to three people about this um, in the past 24 hours. I talked to my little brother in California. I talked to Jesse, and I talked to Chad Brugman. And, and it, it was strange. All three of them brought up the exact same passage of Scripture to me. They all brought up Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And so I thought that was weird. I'm like, that's weird. All three of them jumped to the exact same thing in the entire Bible. And... Um, so maybe somebody in this room needs it tonight, and so because of that, I'm going to say it. And I preface it this way because, in my opinion, these are the three scariest verses in the entire Bible, but this comes straight out of the mouth of Jesus with nothing but love, and I love you guys way too much to not say this to you. So here it goes, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so if you didn't catch it, here's, here's, what, Jesus, here's what just happened. Jesus literally said that one day people are gonna knock on the door to the kingdom of heaven thinking that they have a ticket in, holding up their resumes their shiny resumes of all the things they've done and all, all, all the hours that they've logged sitting in church and all of the verses that they've memorized. And he's gonna look at them in their resumes and say, impressive resumes, but I'm not hiring. Like it doesn't matter how impressive your resume is if the place that you take it to is not hiring. He's gonna say, I, I never knew you. Like you've been outside of my house doing chores for me your entire life. And in the case of these Jewish leaders, doing chores for me out in the open for everybody else to see all the, the good, righteous acts that you're doing and all the chores that you're doing. But I'm not, I'm not looking for slaves outside. I'm not looking for chore doers. I'm looking for sons and I'm looking for daughters. This door's been opened for you to come inside and sit down. I've made dinner. I've made hot chocolate. I want to sit down at a table and get to know you. I'm looking for sons, and I'm looking for daughters. And these verses, you guys, they, they, they can scare, and there's a time and place for that. Like, it's a good reminder that heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus, and there's a big difference between those two things. And just the same way that like tornado warnings, like you turn on a TV and you see a tornado warning, that's scary, but the purpose of that is to save your life. You know, you don't ignore or pray away tornado warnings. In the same way, don't look at a verse like this and ignore it or pray it away because if you do, you will also miss one of the most beautiful implications in the entire Bible. That right smack in the middle of these three verses, Jesus literally says, I want to know you, like, and I want you to know me. I want sons and daughters. I don't need chore doers. 
I don't need slaves. That's the kind of God I am, and that's what makes me different from all the other religions in the world because while all those other religions in the world would say, obey, so that maybe one day you can be accepted, I'm standing outside right now, and I'm telling you, you're already accepted. And so now you're freed up. You're freed up to obey, knowing that I've already taken care of everything. I've already paid the price. Now you can know me. You can stop working for it because religion calls you a slave and Jesus calls you a son. And there's a pastor by the name of Matt Chandler in Dallas, Texas, who says it this way. He says, the difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that at the center of Christian faith is a blood-splattered cross, that at the center of Christian faith is Jesus Christ going to the cross and having the wrath of God, all of the wrath of God poured out on him and absorbing it so that if you are in him, there is now no condemnation for you. Tearing that veil down that separates us from God, that keeps us feeling like we have to earn our way there. He came for us. That's Jesus, is God coming for us, which is probably why he hates religion so much because religion is us trying to find our way to God and he's saying, no, I've come for you. Religion's basically saying, like, I see that cross over there, and I see those two wooden planks covered in your blood, but I still, you know, I'd like to earn some of it. I'd like to do some chores. And he's saying, I don't need you to do chores. I've got grass that never grows. You don't need to mow it. It's magical heaven grass. You'll learn about it one day. I don't need you to do chores for me. I just want to know you. I hate religion. I want to know you. I want to call you my son. I want to call you my daughter. And because of Jesus, we can know the God of the universe for who he really is. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, that he, as in Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that God is, God is intangible and invisible to us, you know, in a lot of ways. But Jesus came to make an intangible and invisible God very visible and very tangible. He's the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, like God's personality and his characteristics, if you've ever been curious about that, look at Jesus and you know what God is like. Because of Jesus, you can know God, the God of the universe with the same intimacy that you know like your best friend or your girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or mom or dad. You can know Jesus with the same kind of intimacy which is lost on us, including myself a lot of times because I keep... I, I treat Jesus like a historical figure and just a historical figure a lot of times. But Jesus was a man, a man with a personality, and I wanted to share a quote with you by a guy named John Eldridge. Here's the quote. You simply cannot love Lincoln or Charlemagne like you love your closest, dearest friend. Though historic figures may be admirable, you cannot love them because you do not know them. They are far too removed from your personal experience to win or sustain your true love. Actual experiences of their personalities are something no one ever really gets. But when it comes to friends and family and lovers, we love them because of who they are, because of their personality. My goodness, we love our pets because of their personality. The fact that your cat sits on your head and licks your ear to wake you. <laughs> Sorry, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth or that your dog has a taste for ginger snaps and underwear. This is John Eldridge. The point, you need personality and you need humanity to have a relationship with somebody. And when we lose the personality of Jesus, 
we lose Jesus. And there's a painting at, um, at my grandma's house in Michigan that I grew up uh, looking at, and you've probably seen similar paintings to this, but it's like of Jesus um, really kind of ethereal looking, like pasty and pale and fragile, and he's got like uh, his hair blowing in the wind, you know, really like angelic looking, like he's like half mist in the picture, like he looks like an angel. And in photos like that, like you can admire Jesus, but you can't know that Jesus. Like in my opinion, that, that painting completely robbed Jesus of his personality. And when there's no personality, there is nobody to know. There is no relationship. We love the people in our lives because of their personalities, because of their humanities. And when we lose the personality of Jesus, we lose Jesus and we, we push him back up into the clouds like some kind of religious figure. That's what I think when I think of that painting. When all along, that love came down to set us free. That love was God with flesh and bone on coming down to get us. And with, with all this religious stuff, we push him just back up into the sky, into the heavens where he's, he's engaged in loftier and more important things than us. We push him back up in, into the stained glass and we lose him. You know, that love came down to get us. Don't push him back up. There's a painting that we used in the banner for our series right here, the series that we're calling The Most Human Face of All. That The Most Human Face of All, by the way, um, is a chapter in a book called um, Beautiful Outlaw, written by John Eldridge, which is all about the personality of Jesus. And if you're looking for a book to read right now, I highly recommend that. But anyways, this painting um, was painted by an eight-year-old girl named... Um, Akiana, that's a cool name, Akiana. She grew up in an atheist home um, where there was no talk about God and one night had a vision um, or a dream of the face of Jesus and woke up the next morning and painted that. I was like, and I don't know what, what you think about that, but honestly, when I look at that, I feel something when I look at that painting of Jesus. Like, I feel humanity and personality in realness in that face right there. And Ben, you guys can come back out. Like, I don't feel like I'm staring at, like, an ethereal painting like the one in my grandma's house. I see a Jesus with depth and mystery to him and personality and playfulness and humor. Like, here's a concept. God has a sense of humor. God is funnier than Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> yeah. Either that or a human being is better at something than God. I don't think so. God is funnier than Jimmy Fallon. God created Jimmy Fallon. God has a sense of humor. I see a Jesus in this who experienced loneliness and pain, a Jesus who reclined at the table with quote-unquote sinners and partiers and made them feel life for the first time because of the way that he treated them. I see a Jesus who was an outlaw and who was constantly hunted by the religious people who wanted to kill him. I see a Jesus who was the busiest, most wanted man ever to, be, ever to live, Yet he would sit down with you and talk with you as if he had all the time in the world to hear out everything that you wanted to tell him. I see a Jesus who cried and a Jesus who laughed with his best friends. A Jesus to, who came to show us what his father was like. I see a Jesus who got tired the same way that we get tired. I see a Jesus who got hungry the same way that we get hungry. Like he'd be pumped about $2 pizzas at Old Chicago. Jesus would probably go to that. Jesus got thirsty just like we got thirsty. Jesus was a human. Jesus sweated just like we sweat, and it didn't smell like plums and cinnamon. <laughs> Jesus was human. Jesus went to the bathroom. Seriously. I see a Jesus who had fun with his friends. 
I see a Jesus whose heart broke with people who were hurting. I see a Jesus, as Chad Brueggemann says, who has the capacity to care and love for all of the little kids in Africa who are starving and at the same time has enough capacity left over to hear you out in all of the things that are hurting you right now in your chair. And he has plenty of more capacity beyond that. I see a Jesus who hates religion and hates when people push him back up into the stained glass. I see a Jesus whose blood is all over that cross that he hung on so that he could bridge the gap between us and God and make it possible for heaven to get more crowded. That's the Jesus I see when I look at that. I see a Jesus who was human, a Jesus with a personality who wants me to come inside and stop doing chores for him and get to know him. Because to find the personality of Jesus is to find the greatest treasure in your life. That's the Jesus that wants to know you and that's the Jesus that you can know. And maybe tonight you're in here and uh, you don't know Jesus and um, this is the first time in your life that you're, you're hearing about this and I want you to know something that you don't need to do chores for him. You don't need to clean yourself up and make yourself look pretty enough to come to him hoping that he'll accept you. He wants to know you right now. You don't need the rules before you need the savior. And you might be asking me, like, was that all it is? You just sit with Jesus and that's it? Yes and no. You sit with Jesus and you come to love Jesus. And in a response to that, as you fall in love with him, you start to be like, all right, Jesus, I want to obey you. I want to obey you. I'll do things your way. I just got married four months ago, and my wife loves to have the bed made every single morning. And she leaves for work about 20 minutes before I do. And so I always try to make the bed for her, not because I'm trying to make her love me and not because I'm afraid that she's gonna flip out on me if I don't make the bed. I do it because I know that she loves to come home and see that the bed's been made. I do it in response to the fact that I love her. In the same way with Jesus, you get the savior and then you fall in love with him and then you do life the way that he created life to be, not the way that we do life in the world. I don't know if you've noticed, but our world, the way that we do life is not working. He designed it and he has a plan. And that's how this thing works. And maybe you're in here tonight and uh, maybe you're in here tonight and you've, you needed this like a reminder just the same way that I did, that Jesus is very much himself and very much alive and very much with a personality who wants to know you. And maybe you've been outside doing chores like you went in the house and then you went back out to try to earn something. Maybe you've been in the house and you're doing, you're vacuuming the carpet and he's saying, no, my, my carpet doesn't get dirty. I don't need you to do chores. If you're like me, you're like, okay, let me earn a few more things, God, so I can come back and then we'll get to know each other. And he's saying to you tonight, or we could just bypass all of that BS and we can get to know each other right now because I've taken care of it. Because what you need is not to do chores. What you need is not to clean yourself up. What you need is Jesus. You need me is what he's saying in my fullness. You need to know me. And he resonates with us, guys. And I'll finish with this. I'm two minutes away, I promise. In Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 15, it says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as you are, yet he did not sin. And as human beings, guys, we have weaknesses and we have temptations. We struggle with things. We do things that we wish we didn't do and we don't do the things that we wish we did do and we wish we were better at not sinning and like we try and we fail all the time and, and I don't think I need to do a lot of work 
convincing you of that. If that's not you, like you're not in here. What we have is a bunch of people, 18 to 30, who feel a certain amount of emptiness inside, depending on if it's been a good or bad week or a good or bad year. And just know we have a savior who comes before the rules, who empathizes with us because he's been there. And whatever pain you're feeling tonight, he knows it. Whatever fear you're feeling tonight, he knows it. That's the beautiful thing about this God is that despite us, he came down, put skin on to get us and not just to save us, but to say, I'm the creator of the universe. I opened my mouth and I breathed out everything that you see and I want to know you. And this is the Jesus that we sing tonight. Sing to tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the wonderful gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you that you want to be known, that you're not up in the clouds engaged in loftier and more important things than us, but you're down here in this room with us tonight with a full personality and a full humanity, and you're saying, just come inside. I want to know you guys. Stop doing chores for me and just sit with me. God, that is the greatest news in the world. Help us to know you for who you really are. Help us to lay down all the ways in our lives that we're like those Jewish leaders. Just to be with you and sit with you and find your personality and search for it like we would search for treasure. We love you so much and pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.